Well, after an exciting tournament in Namibia, Bertus de Jong is back from Vintuk and he's joining the Emerging Cricket podcast to review all the action from Southern Africa. And, uh, well, we've got our two teams that have qualified to the World Cup qualifier in the USA and the UAE. And we've got our two teams that have uh, regained in the case of Canada and retained in the case of the UAE ODI status. Uh, and we also have our two teams that are sent back down to the Challenge League in Jersey and PNG. An interesting tournament in that the UAE, who had sort of stumbled uh, in the back end of their uh, League Two campaign into the relegation zone, ended up being in the <laughs> ended up qualifying for the World Cup qualifier proper, as well as just retaining their status. So. I guess to kind of review the the overall uh, broad strokes of the tournament, an exciting time. Although the last day was a bit of a, a bit of a damp squib uh, because all the positions had more or less been decided. But uh, USA and UAE, probably not the two teams. I mean, certainly not the teams that I would have picked coming into this. And Canada. Uh, I mean, I know I'm I'm a bit biased there, but uh, I think a lot of people thought they'd do a bit better. Uh, Namibia, hit by injuries, coming in third on the table. It's kind of not that surprising. Jersey, we thought maybe we'd do a little bit better. And yeah, PNG were pretty dismal, if we're honest. Were you surprised by the, the final standings here, Bertus? Uh, yeah, somewhat. As I mentioned on the on the pod last week, I had I backed Canada to do a bit better. But I think really the story here is is more just how impressively UAE bounced back from that that uh, awful rutted form that they'd been in at the back end of League Two. We always knew they had the talent. I mean, if you're looking at the sides really on paper, man for man, you probably think that the United States uh, and the UAE are probably the two strongest teams uh, at the tournament. But we just didn't think, given sort of recent performance, that uh, the UAE uh, would be able to turn it around so quickly. And yeah, with Canada, and it, it was a step up for this level. They were incredibly dominant at Challenge League. And I think what we saw from them is, is you know, they didn't miss out by an awful lot. Uh, it's just... Really, that that um, last game against Namibia that cost them, uh, and other than that, yeah, they lost to 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 the UAE, of course. But we we looking from the the stats uh, from the Challenge League. The interesting thing is that we thought that um, Canada uh, had this strong top order, and you know their their list A stats were impressive coming into the tournament. And we said the same thing about Jersey with a little less confidence. Jersey's top order actually stood up. It, it wasn't enough for them in the end. But Canada, if you look at Sort of how that really quite imposing looking top order performed through the tournament. You sort of see that's that's kind of where they were let down. Yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned that top order and Jersey had two batters in the top five run scorers for the tournament in Lawrenson and Tribe, who are once again uh, one of your picks for for players to watch. Tribe, an extremely impressive young talent uh, coming through the Jersey youth system. I think he's still a teenager, so plenty of time uh, on the clock left for him. And we we might touch on Jersey in a little bit more detail, but just just drilling into your point about the UAE they've also got two batters in the top five run scorers including Asif Khan who uh, was the very top run scorer with 296 in uh, five appearances there I'm just thinking back to you know the back end of their League Two campaign where things were looking pretty miserable and they they really were in very dismal form. Then you know they sack the coach, everything gets turned around. Is is it as simple as that? Well, I mean you hesitate to say that it, so much of it can come down to coaching, but it, it certainly did seem from what I saw of the UAE both on the field and you know around the hotel around the boundary that they just they seem to be just in a far happier place, just far more uh, relaxed under under a sort of more hands-off coaching approach from Amadaz and Azar. And I think that you did see that, the, the players that really stood up for them, they just, I mean, 
uh, especially Asif Khan is, is a great example of this, just look to be playing, drop down the order and look to be playing with, with a lot of freedom. And yeah, just, you know, playing the way that he likes to play. And his run tally has close to 300 runs um, at a strike rate of well over 100. Uh, he was making those runs at the back end, which was was lifting UAE to, to really competitive totals despite uh, a lot of early wickets um, at times, which was something that affected almost all the teams that you were seeing. It was pretty rare that uh, teams were getting through the power play without losing a couple up top. And the the stability that they got, you know, from Fritz Aravind, who, was, who had a good tournament, and that sort of combination uh, in the top order of, and even Ian Lakra, who maybe scored a little slowly, but saw off a lot of balls as well. And then having both Wazim at the top of the order and then uh, Asif down the order to be able to provide sort of the acceleration took them to, you know, totals which other teams weren't getting close to. Yeah, and I guess that combination of, of having someone at the top and someone playing that finisher role is something that's really missing from a lot of teams at this level. And, and you could see the difference in the fact that they were hitting form. I guess you could say hitting form at the right time because they put up a pretty big score against Nepal in their last League 2 game, even though they ended up losing that. I think the turnaround of form, uh, you, you mentioned Richard Aravind. That's one that um, I, I don't think should go unnoticed because... Uh, yeah, he was really struggling for for a lot of that, um, you know, towards the end of their league two uh, run, and you just saw a few signs in the last couple of games where he was he was scratchy, but he he managed to sort of stick around at the crease and and seemed to be approaching some kind of form, and and now yeah, in this tournament, averaging well over fifty, hit a couple of half centuries. Uh, he, he looked a lot more fluent at the crease. How important do you think Vrijit Aravind is to that team? Because I know they've got Mohamed Wazim and Asif Khan you know, blasting away at the top and, 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 and in the finishing role, respectively. But, you know, if you don't have someone who can stick around, it often can go pretty pear-shaped very quickly. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think that it's... Um... A strength that the UAE have in this batting lineup that they have these players that complement each other rather well. I think that, that Rich might have struggled more to play himself back into form as he has this tournament if he didn't have players like Asif and, and Wazim picking up sort of the strike rate requirement. Someone I think probably also worth mentioning with that is Ayan Khan, who performs a similar sort of role down the order to what Richard does at the top. Uh, in complementing kind of the the more aggressive players, and he has had a great tournament with the bat. I mean, he's talked about his his bowling, but um, with that 94 not out was extraordinarily impressive. And I think that he maybe didn't actually spend as much time in the crease just because the top order went pretty well. But I think he's probably averaging three figures for this tournament. Yeah, 137, pretty handy average for the tournament. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he only made three appearances with the bat. But yes, uh, he he was another impressive one. I, I guess looking across the bowling though, and you know, you mentioned Ayanaf Khan. He was you know tidy. But, but didn't sort of set the tournament alight. And, and uh, all the UAE bowlers really were kind of uh, workmanlike rather than devastating, I guess you could say. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, when their, their batting was hitting form, their bowling didn't really need to be taking as many wickets. And, and you can kind of get away with that at, at this level is having a stronger suit. And, you know, your, your bowling can kind of be a bit more uh, on the containment side. And I mean, that sort of uh, approach has worked really well for Jersey in the Challenge League. It didn't uh, didn't quite get them there in this tournament. But, you know, one bowling attack that uh, has been able to really get some penetration was the USA. And that was largely due to uh, Ali Khan, uh, who broke the record for the uh, best bowling figures by a pace bowler from an associate nation when he took seven for 32 against Jersey. Aside from that, though, he was basically unplayable in the power play, uh, which made a huge difference. And, you know, it's amazing how much of an improvement the USA bowling lineup 
really sees when Ali Khan is in there, even though it's only one guy, having you know, express quick bowler, banging in Yorkers, just, you know, there's nothing uh, anyone can do about Ali Khan when he's on song. At the other end, it takes the pressure off in a way because then you have guys like Surab Natravaka, who's a crafty bowler, but, you know, not devastating in the same way. And, and he can play a containment role. You've got Nasag Patel, who was quite impressive this tournament. Um, parsimonious is probably the word that comes to mind. Um, the guys who kind of bowl around Ali Khan, it's, it's sort of like how people can bat around uh, Richard Aravind or, or Mohamed Wazim in the UAE lineup. You know, the, the USA's bowling was, was their strong suit this tournament, and just Ali Khan makes such a huge difference. I mean, yeah, we flagged this ahead of the tournament, and it wasn't exactly a particularly bold call. Ali Khan, a difference maker, is exactly right. Nisog Patel, you mentioned, I should say, yeah, that what Ali Khan does at the top of the order, there's a couple of other bowlers who are doing similar things, if just not quite to the same extent. But taking early wickets has not always uh, been enough uh, in this tournament to keep people contained. So there's, yeah, pointing to the likes of Netrabalka and Nisog Patel, who was not only uh, a fairly economical, but I think also took a fair few wickets through the middle. 11 for the tournament, yes. Um, this unit at this in this tournament has been remarkably impressive and I think they've actually they are uh, the only side that conceded less than a thousand runs across the five games in fact so Canada and the US are the only two that conceded less than 1200 uh, across five games and the US I think went to about 950 so in what's been quite a high scoring tournament the the bowling attack has been remarkably impressive uh, the batting actually has been comparatively you could either describe it as being patchy or you could describe it as being a collective effort because i think most of the usa top order has at least one score but very few of them have, have more than that so yeah whether that's um the bowling will probably go ex- similarly well in in zimbabwe whether they'll get uh, found out with the bat there is perhaps a different question. Well, we can, well, we can look at the Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe tournament, tournament a, a, a bit, later, bit on. later on. Yeah, Stephen Taylor batted quite well, although he was injured for the first couple of games, so that probably made a, a bit of a difference. But yeah, so the, we've got our top two in the USA and the UAE, uh, which was a bit of a surprise for some people, although, as you say, uh, on paper, both teams are, are quite strong. Looking down the list, Namibia, I mean, third, in a way, you could say it's it's kind of a good performance for them. Uh, you, they were missing, uh, off the top of my head, I would say they were missing at least five uh, first choice players, uh, potentially more even. So to come third in this tournament is a pretty good effort, really, under those circumstances. But I think, you know, at home... They'd still be disappointed. Uh, Gerard Erasmus had a good tournament, but with the bat, as you kind of allude to, uh, there was a lot of uh, other patchiness. Uh, Michael Van Lingen scored a century, uh, didn't do a whole lot else. Uh, Nico Darwin got going a couple of times at the top of the order, but but wasn't really consistent enough. Um, Sean Fouché, actually, uh, who was kind of playing that, that makeshift opener role uh, after Lohan Lawrence was injured. Um, I was quite impressed with Fouché. He, he picked up a, a number of wickets and he batted quite solidly at the top of the order um more so than we've seen in the past from him he's i've sort of had him pegged as a you know one of those uh many many uh, bits and pieces or rounders that namibia seemed to churn out but but he was quite impressive uh who, who caught your eye for the namibians in in the pretty difficult circumstances yeah actually that's that's one thing i had noted down as well that it, it was actually quite impressive i was quite impressed by the way that um Fouché stood up in what's really quite an important role given the difficulties that that 
Uh, Namibia had and the fact that it was in fact an awful lot of um, all-rounders that they were missing. Third place is pretty much where I think a lot of people have them ahead of the tournament for pretty much the exact same reasons that eventually put them there which is yeah they just with the unavailabilities and the injuries you're just lacking that sort of uh, first second challenge of bowlers coming on to take really to take advantage of early inroads that you find. I noticed that say Carl Birkenstock actually was well enough at the bat but his bowling was just yeah, insufficient if you compare it to what you have if you have someone like Jan Firelink or JJ coming on. And you saw that eventually in the results that they weren't able to kill teams off and ended up paying for it. And in the same way, they don't, you know, when they had some scores on the board early, they weren't able to run up the score at the end because the middle order, everyone was probably batting a place or two too high. And then you, you have this sort of long tail that uh, eventually kind of got found out or rather immediately could have got found out sort of against the state. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it was obviously a difficult tournament for them in the circumstances. It wasn't one they would have wanted to be playing in. It was very nearly one that they didn't have to play in. But just with the resources that they had, you did see that, say, Bench Congo did very well with the new ball, but was extremely expensive when he was coming back and was possibly a bit overused sort of later in the innings. And uh, it felt as though Erasmus at some point was running low on ideas. I think the fact that um, Lofty Eaton has had a bit of um, slumping form with the ball uh, hasn't helped either. That yeah, that that maybe basically was, it looked like they were eventually a bit stuck for ideas with the ball. Well, it's interesting you bring up Lofty Eaton because he didn't bowl a single delivery in the whole tournament, which I think his bowling is actually quite good and and definitely worth persisting with uh, because. You know, if, if if he can become a reliable all-rounder, that just, uh, you know, with the spin to support Bernard Schultz, that can give Namibia so much more flexibility rather than Erasmus having to bowl uh, quite as much as he did. I know Erasmus's bowling is, you know, it's okay. He, he took, I think, sort of five or six wickets across the tournament, which is, you know, he's regularly getting breakthroughs. But I'm, I'm not convinced that putting Lofty Eaton in the sin bin is, is the way to go in terms of his bowling. I mean, what what is... Carl Birkenstock bringing to this team, really, with the ball, not a whole lot, I would say. Uh, I, I, I mean, pretty clearly he's only there because of all the injuries. You know, you'd, you'd take JJ Smith or, or Jan Freilink or David Visa or, you know, a number of players ahead of him any day of the week. Chicago, I think is, yeah, as we discussed him in the midway uh, sort of review, but he definitely improved a lot early on. But I guess, what do you think he needs to do to, to really make the difference when he's coming back later on? Because, yeah, as you say, he did go for runs in his sort of second, third spells. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to say because he's an impre- it's it's hard to be too down on him because he's pretty clearly improved with a new ball and 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 it should be said that like everyone, almost all the seamers were getting hit um, at the back end of the inning. So I think if you if you look at Trumpman's sort of first spells compared to his second spells, that you'll see something pretty similar if 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 less pronounced um, than it was in the case of Chicago. So I, yeah, I, too, I don't think you can lay too much blame on him. I think you just maybe just yeah, captaincy mistakes under pressure. Um, just the idea that like you've got a guy in the side uh, as a pure bowler, and Ben Chicago is, I think, at this stage, you still very much say very much a pure bowler that you kind of feel obliged to to use him for you know at least seven or eight overs every game. But I think in retrospect, that might have been a mistake that you, you'd actually maybe just have him in the side just for the four overs up top, especially because you do you have the spin options. You know, you're picking up France ball very well. I felt. Yeah, very tidy. He was, he was I think, pretty close to his, his econom, uh, economical as Schultz was, but uh, won't have bowled all of his overs, although he did, he, he bowled a fair amount. I think he probably bowled about seven or eight overs a game. Um, but then you're still looking at if you've got a bowler that's going at, fours through the tournament and you've got another bowler that's doing well in his first spell but probably going at eights or nines in his second spell then yeah you do have to you have to wonder whether 
maybe at some point you just have to go, well, look, four or five overs from Bench Congo up top is as good as we're going to get in the conditions and against these teams. And yeah, I think that, I think that's probably something that you can put out in hindsight, um, probably a question of captaincy there. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And yeah, it is a shame because I, I think, as you say, Chicago has improved a lot and it's sort of like you, you want him to do well because he's still, I think he's still only 20 or so. So you know, I think there's still room for him to improve, maybe get a little bit quicker at a yard of pace and, and just uh, maybe a couple of tricks with the ball and he'll be a very dangerous customer coming back in, in the second spell. Um, yeah, moving down the list, Canada coming in fourth, started off so well with two victories and then as they often do at these tournaments, they just sort of stumbled. Um, <laughs> it's it's something I see a lot is that Canada, they, they just kind of get into a bit of a rut and yeah, so they lost to the UAE not not too heavily. Uh, the UAE, you, I guess you could say they cruised the chase. Uh, they, they chased down 250-odd in 49 overs. But Canada being, you know, Pargat Singh hit a century in that game. Um, they set 254, which is a decent total. But, you know, when you're sitting at 2 for 160 after 30 overs, you should be looking at 300 minimum. Um, so, yeah, the, the Canadian middle order really let them down there. Uh, I guess your point about the top order, I, I, I don't, I, I disagree a little bit in that, you know, Aaron Johnson was kind of hit or miss, but that's that's sort of what you get with him. He goes hard at the top, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Spores, yeah, Spores was a bit disappointing, but yeah, Pargat Singh I think was was very impressive at the top. The the problem was more kind of down towards the end. I don't think they really utilized uh, Ravinder Pal Singh very well, coming in sort of seven or eight, which I think is a bit low for him. Um, and they were almost, I don't know, maybe Sudbin Zafar was a bit, you, you could have brought him in a little bit earlier in a couple of games. Yeah, so I, I'm not 100% sure where the problems lie, but yeah, can, Canadian batting just was a bit disappointing, and, and they, they failed to really put the pressure on and pile up the runs when the going was good, uh, which meant that their bowlers had to do a bit too much. You know, even in that game against Jersey, you know, they probably should have had a few more runs to defend against one of the weaker teams. The bowlers got them out of trouble with the bat and with the ball. Um, and, and then, yeah, same thing against Namibia. They were just totally outclassed. And even against PNG, you know, they only put up 200 or so. And yes, Jeremy Gordon got six wickets, but I don't know. I, I feel like Canada's batting was probably their weak point compared to their bowling, which, which as you say, is, is kind of funny in that we expected their batting to be their strong suit. But yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm the perpetual uh, sort of worrying fan and, and I'm just looking ahead to their League 2 campaign, which, yes, they secured ODI status, but, yeah, I don't know. Where, where's it going to go from here? I mean, yeah, I think you're, you're, there's, a lot, there's a lot of points there to cover and I think um, some of them are fair. If you look at someone like Aaron Johnson, he's, his, his, his role is to go hard at the top and he did. And in that respect, if he's got a strike rate up above 100 and he, he obviously had an average of... It was 20, 25. He's not had a great tournament, but then you're going to get tournaments like that. I think the rest of the top order is probably where you need to be looking here. Pragat Singh did have that, yeah, okay, that, that century, but in yeah, what turned out to be quite a high-scoring game for the rest is also scores in the 20s. Nicholas Curzon, I think, actually did remarkably well in the middle order. But yeah, the fact is that they they had a lower order. Yeah, they have this lower order that can dig them out of trouble. So that, that sort of gives the top order license to to maybe be a bit more adventurous. But even then, you're, you're not really seeing, you know, Johnson aside, particularly high strike rates. I think most people are striking in the 60s or maybe the high 70s. And this is a high-scoring tournament. You know, so these are, they were getting scores where they were, okay, they managed to defend 198 against the States. But for the rest, you're getting scores that, in retrospect, ended up looking a bit subpar. And I think that's 
true even of their opening game against Jersey, which I think that, that actually looking back on that game, you'd think that if that game had been played last, that Jersey probably would have chased those down. Uh, I think if Jersey had, had hit the ground running a bit in this tournament that and picked up that first win, we could have been looking at a very different situation for Canada. But on the other hand, they have got through. They got their, their pre-printed hats. Um, uh, that's, that was very unimpressive. I think that's just that's just asking for trouble doing something like that. Well, I mean, it is obviously it is tempting fate rather. But on the other hand, I don't know where you'd get hats like that printed last minute in Vintage either. So yeah, that, that's a fair point. But look, at the end of the day, they will have felt that they would have underperformed. Uh, but, you know, it's a testament still to the strength of the side that you can have what is essentially, yeah, like they've underperformed that tournament, but they've still done well enough to get a place back in the top flight. And I don't see them struggling in the next iteration of uh, League Two or whatever it is that replaces it in the way that, say, P&G have, especially given the fact that they've had, they've been in the Challenge League. Um, most of the team are on full-time contracts. They're on, you know, retainers or match day fees. Uh, and that's going to change going forward with ODI status and um, the GT20 coming back, at least so we're told. Um, so I was told at least by um, by several people out in Namibia and apparently the entire provincial government feel the need to donate three million in that direction. So hopefully some of that money will end up in the pockets of the players and you'll this will be a team that has been uh, struggling, I guess, in terms of security. We'll be playing full-time cricket, and I think that's going to make a big difference to this Canada side going forward. Well, yeah, and I guess a good example of that, uh, speaking of that top order, is Navneet Daliwal, who was in tremendous form throughout the Challenge League. Uh, he had a number of uh, centuries and, and was batting with great fluency. He was definitely the best batter at the, the Challenge League leg I attended in Toronto, but he was unavailable from what we've heard uh, due to work commitments and basically he was, was unable to get time off. So when your best batter is not able to play because he's got to get a real job, that certainly makes a difference. And I guess just on the other point with professionalism, the difference was probably most pronounced for, for Canada compared to the other teams in their fielding. And they certainly dropped a number of very uh, catchable chances. They were just sloppy. They let runs uh, go that they probably shouldn't have. And ultimately, I, I think it probably cost them at least one game in this tournament. Yeah, it must be said that they certainly weren't the only side of the tournament that were guilty of some lazy feeling, but probably they, yeah, when they're looking back on this tournament and doing an assessment of where they could improve, um, the fielding might actually uh, be right up there at the top. But again, that is something that is probably easiest to improve just by you know spending more time training and spending more time playing together. Uh, I think that yeah, you, you see the sort of problems that there, there that were in evidence in this this Canada side are the sort of problems that you probably can fix. Yeah, with just spending more time playing cricket, spending more time playing as a team. Yeah, I I think looking ahead to to the coming cycle, this Canada team's it's got a lot of promise. I think that they've earned their place back in the top tier, and I think that probably the top tier will be the stronger for it. Now one. Uh, one last point about Canada, though, is that Jeremy Gordon is having some sort of a career renaissance. He's been known for a, a number of years as a fast but wayward. Um, but, you know, somehow Pabudu seems to have managed to, to get the best out of him. And, and honestly, I was a bit sceptical of him making the step up to this level because I think, you know, his style of aggressive fast bowling is very effective at lower levels where batters probably haven't seen someone as quick as him very much. But playing against League Two teams who, who are probably more used to quick bowling, I thought he might struggle. But, you know, he was still taking wickets. And, I mean, six wickets against PNG. Yeah, it was the last game and, and PNG were probably a bit mentally checked out. But, you know, even before that, he'd taken a number of wickets throughout the tournament and looked very threatening early on. So what, what's happening? Is this just a Dasanayaka magic? Oh, it could be. I mean, I think there's certain players that, that step up their game when they get 
when they take a step up to a, a higher stage. Um, but there is also just a, a, such a thing as finding your rhythm in a tournament. And it wasn't only that the AKs got a 12 wickets and six of them came at the back end of a tournament against the weakest team that were already out. Uh, but what impressed me is he didn't go for a whole lot of runs, mm. which is true of all of the, the Canadian bowling. In fact, I think I don't think anybody was going at, at more than five for that tournament. But for a bowler of Jeremy Gordon's type, you think that this is a guy that's he's a strike bowler. He's going to be expensive, but he's going to get you wickets. And, and it turns out that yeah, his accuracy, I think, is the thing that um, that impressed most. He just looked in a good rhythm. It didn't look like it was actually costing him too much effort to bowl as quick as he was. And yeah, very impressive for a guy who I think is what 36, 37 now. He certainly doesn't look like it when he's bowling. No, how are you going? Uh, I think you, I saw your tweet saying he's uh, almost the same age as you. Yeah, no. Well, I was. I don't think I've ever been that quick, and I'm certainly not these days. <laughs> I, I think I would genuinely like to face your bowling, Curtis. Uh, we'll see if we can set that up sometime. <laughs> eh? Little wobblers coming down, hey? Yeah, well, I mean, I've torn, have torn my arm half off at one point, so it's not quite what it used to be, and what it used to be was rubbish anyway, so <laughs> for another time. Yes, uh, moving on to Jersey, who did record their first ever one-day international victory, which was impressive for them. Uh, they could get enough uh, wins on the board to keep that one day international status and make their way into League 2 but you know they weren't too far off uh, even looking down at their results you know against Canada they were pretty close you know the USA the game where uh, Ali Khan took 7 for 32 they only lost by about 20 runs in that game because uh, Asa Tribe hit a decent half century and you know, aside from Ali Khan, the rest of the bowling wasn't too threatening. And you know, on the flip side, the uh, I think Ben Ward took four wickets in that game and, and, and Jersey stayed in it almost until the end. So that kind of typifies their tournament. You know, They got not quite blown away. They were there or thereabouts. Uh, they, they managed to scrap their way uh, to within striking distance, but they couldn't quite get over the line. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. They may go home a bit disappointed not to have picked up a couple more wins. They certainly would have looked at certainly their, their opening game against Canada where they might have looked back on that and gone, oh, that, that might have been winnable, which would have yeah, put them in a very different position at the end of the tournament. That United States game as well, so there's very little you can do, of course, when, when Ali Khan uh, not only is, is bowling at the absolute top of his game, uh, but also if it seems that through the whole uh, Jersey batting innings that the umpires were against them. Now, I should actually point out that probably the same was true. That the United States could say the same thing in their batting innings where they've probably got a couple of LBW decisions that would not have survived the DRS review. But definitely Jersey might be looking back at that and going, yeah, we look, we weren't too far away from beating the tournament champions here. So I don't think that they look, they didn't look outclassed by any measure. And the top order is, is what, again, we talked about it before in the tournament, that they, they looked very good in the Challenge League. And it'd be interesting to see how well uh, they handle this step up. And I think that all told, you can say they handled it very well. Uh, Ace Tribe in particular, but also Josh Lawrence and uh, batted very well. Uh, Harrison Kalian. Uh, Greenwood didn't perhaps have quite the tournament he would have liked to, but did again, like doesn't look lost at, at, at this level at all. Uh, and these are young guys, you know, these, their whole top order batting is, you know, in their teens or um, early 20s. So I think we said maybe this is a cycle too soon and there'll be a stronger team probably when they come back in four years. And I think it'd be very surprising if they weren't back in four years' time and a stronger team for it. Yeah, that point about the batting is is a good one. And, you know, you look at that top order with Tribe and Lawrence and, and, and Carlion. Greenwood, you know, you give Greenwood one extra game where he, I think he hit 150 this tournament but didn't do a whole lot else. You know, that might push them over if 
they beat the right opponent. So, yeah, they weren't too far off. Uh, Tribe, very impressive. Lawrenson, again, um, that partnership they hit, probably worth mentioning, was uh, 232, which was the highest ever for any wicket by an associate nation in any ODI cricket. So congratulations on that one. That was in the victory against PNG. Yeah, um, from the situation they were in there as well, so impressive. But also, like yes. again, Tribe constructing that partnership like that against the USA, and I think that's something that you've got to remember this because it's only 18 years old. Coming in when you've lost a couple or five in the case of the USA game early wickets, and to be able to bat like that, to show that sort of way of all maturity, to see off the threat and then turn the game around, in the way that he did and it to be honest it looked an awful lot in that uh, usa game until he got that absolute shock of an lbw decision that tribe and water were going to pull off something special there so yeah just, it's not just the fact that you're making runs on what admittedly was quite flat deck you know at united you've so if there's going to be a ground where uh, the the 220s can be broken again that that's the one you pick but yeah to be able to do that to show that kind of resilience uh not just once but twice is just generally very impressed especially coming back from let's be honest a pretty tough start to the tournament tribe yeah he was disappointing early but yeah just looking at the scorecard <laughs> jersey were uh, five for 17 uh, after that opening blast from ali khan with obviously with ali khan taking all five uh, and uh, no one else in the top six made more than i think certainly no one made double figures in the top six aside from tribe but yeah i mean the maturity there is impressive the technique he's got is impressive i, I think the only thing maybe missing is is a, a little bit of acceleration but that'll come with time i think he's, he's a special talent for jersey uh you've mentioned the umpiring we'll just park that uh, for one moment and and we'll finish our sort of team reviews and get onto PNG, who were, um, I mean, I called them dismal earlier on, but yeah, the first couple of games, they were quite competitive, and really, they'll be kicking themselves that they didn't at least get a couple more wins, but certainly, you know, if they played the way they played in the first half of the tournament, they wouldn't be sitting on 30 losses out of 36 matches in League 2, I'll put it that way. Yeah, it's, it's fair. You, you were hoping that starting to pick up wins at the back end of League 2, that maybe you'd see a different approach or a different sort of PNG uh, at this tournament, and, and in a while you did, I I, you know, I thought that Captain Dariga and, and Tony Euro batted with, with positive intent at the top of the order. They looked like they were enjoying their cricket at the start, at least. But in the end, yeah, it just, they needed a little luck, I think, to be able to get through this tournament with their ODI status intact. And they didn't really get it. They sort of had good phases in, in most of the games they played without ever being able to put in a, a solid 50 overs, let alone 100. And that, I think you just... You're in a situation now where a lot of the teams around them have got a kind of duty in place and they, they seem to be steadily improving their cricket. And with the trouble PNG is that they have this core of players and the young ones coming through just aren't really stepping up quite to the same level. And you wonder whether that's a question of player pool or whether it's a, a question of how the fact that, of course, they, they come through age groups playing in a fairly weak region. So, you know, the senior teams are often going to be a, a pretty significant step up for them. So, yeah, you, it's back to the drawing board for, for PNG. And I think that maybe going back back to the Challenge Leagues and, and getting in the habit of winning again uh, may actually do them some good. And one hopes that the yeah the financial ramifications, of course, of the drop down back to, well, with the loss of, of ODI status, don't have too much of an impact uh, on, on the work that's happening out there. Well, the interesting thing about PNG is that out of all the teams, certainly in League Two, they're definitely one of the teams that have the best funding streams coming from sort of private sponsorships and, and whatnot. So you'd, you'd hope that they'd be able to fill at least some of the gaps in, in the ICC funding, although, you know, Losing a few hundred thousand dollars is always going to affect anyone at this level. I just want to sort of focus on their, their batting, though. CJ Amini, who's done basically 
almost nothing, the whole of League Two, has suddenly come out, blasted a, what, 66 ball century? Something like that. Uh, yes, it was a flat deck, but that, you know, they were chasing 380 and they got pretty close to it. And then he, he backs it up with, with another half century where he looked very good. You know, did he just suddenly remember how to bat? Because you know, if CJ Meany's playing like this, uh, in their middle order, you know, then suddenly they look a lot stronger. Yeah, I mean, it's I I, I have to say I, I wasn't at that game. It was at the USA Canada game for that day. But just looking some of it back, it's like, well, admittedly, if you want a situation to be able to play yourself back into some sort of confidence, then playing a sort of second string, maybe a bowling attack on an absolute road at United, that altitude is possibly the exact circumstances you need. But say that CJ grabbed that opportunity with both hands, as of course a colossal understatement. And I hesitate to be able to, you can't read the man's mind particularly, but a lot of the time you do see this with PNGs, that they seem to be a, a very sort of confidence and form uh, dependent team. And when they're up, they're up. And when they're down, they're just drag. Um, so I think it's a bit of a shame that, yeah, you have this, but it's not only CJ, of course, but Captain Dorigo and Tony Ura at the top early in the tournament were just looking yeah. at not just an opening partnership you'd be happy with, but an opening partnership that you'd be quite worried about bowling to. And uh, it's unfortunate that just exactly when they came off, that, say, uh, Valo and Amini did not then back it up or that Cesar Bao didn't come back. And that's, you know, something that normally uh, in that lower order you'd expect one of, of Valo or, or Bao or, or, or even uh, Charlie Soper down the order to be able to build on a platform that when the PNG has actually managed to provide one. And it's a bit unfortunate that on a couple of occasions that finally the, the top of the order comes off that PNG weren't able to capitalise. And it should, I think you have to take a look at the bowling as well, which it just seems like, you know, while Valor uh, was you know, economical, uh, as, he, as he usually is, I think Chad Soper did a good job for them. And the youngsters, actually, it should be said that that uh, John Carrico, who we, I think, only got a couple of games at the back end there, um, and Seneca Mayer both, both bowled well. But the containment just was not really there at this level. I don't think that they were really able to stop other teams scoring. And they didn't, I think, aside from Valor, didn't have that option to, to, to sort of control the game and sap the momentum out of an innings in the way that other teams did. And I think that they did, in the end, end up conceding off the tournament, but might, might be close to 1,400 runs. And if you compare that to sort of, yeah, the team that won that went for under 1,000 across the five games, I think that's, you know, it's hard, hard to argue that's the difference. Well, just on John Carrico, and this gets to the point of the young talent coming through, it's kind of a bit strange that he only got two games and in one of them, he, he took four wickets and looked very threatening against Canada. Yeah, I, so, and I was going on the stream for that one as well, um, but I, I watched the majority of it back. For once, we had decent Wi-Fi, so we, we actually managed to have the stream up for that. <laughs> it should be pointed out as well that um, oftentimes uh, you have a better sense of what's going on in the middle watching the stream than you do sort of at a, at a very bleak angle at the grounds here from, from a fair old distance, especially uh, when your eyesight's failing now, as my mind seems to be, and I've got my glasses. Um, so quite a lot of the time, even the game I was at, I'd end up watching wickets back on the stream. Um, but yeah, I, I watched a fair bit of that, and I was impressed with him as well. And he looked, he got his debut in, in League Two, as I recall, and, and it looked pretty decent. So I was a little surprised that he that they waited so long to, to bring him into the team. But perhaps also understandable because it's a high-pressure tournament. And for, to bring, I think, I'm not sure how old he is. I think he I have a suspicion he might only just be 20 as well. That bringing yeah, sort of a youngster into the team that's only recently made his debut at one of very high-pressure games, I think that maybe it was a risk they weren't willing to take early. And yeah, I mean, it might have been a different story if they had. Yeah, and I mean, with, with Simo Kamiya coming in and, and taking a bunch of wickets in this tournament as well, 
Uh, we've got Nasana Pakana, who's bouncing back, finding some form at the second 11 level against, uh, among others, Tim Cutler. Um, although I don't think you ever bowled to Cutler, so that's uh, that's that's something to keep an eye on. But uh, the last missed pretty much all of those games. At Germany. Yes, well, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely was was worth keeping an eye on. But uh, maybe maybe one day you'll be able to watch Cutler playing for Vanuatu. But uh, Yes, I think, you know, PNG's bowling, sort of strangely enough, it looks like there's actually some, some decent talent there, but it's just the batting that, you know, that just no one beyond the sort of usual suspect. And even when they perform, they don't perform together. And that's a that's a real problem. I, I just quickly, uh, before we move on, I, I would... <laughs> what is the point of Gaudi Toka? You know, he's, he's played quite a few ODIs for PNG and I still can't quite work out what he's meant to be doing in the team. He can't really bat very well and he doesn't bowl a whole lot. I don't know. Is he playing as a specialist number seven, number eight? I don't get it. Well, I mean, it wouldn't make PNG the only uh, team strongly fielding a specialist number seven, number eight. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. He certainly didn't have the best tournament and he's, he's not had the greatest run of form either. I can't answer that question. It's something you perhaps have to put to Mark Coles, but, you know, generally I'm hesitant to call for underperforming uh, younger players to get thrown out of teams, especially when there's no obvious replacement. And especially when, I mean, often you have the situation where the coaches on the ground see these players and they see something in these players uh, that they see a potential that maybe it's not so easy to see when we only see them, you know, when they actually take the field. So I am, the, the example that I tend to point to in this case is um, the likes of uh, Toby Bisset or, or Buster Leder from the Netherlands. Yeah, good point. Were constantly, um, I mean, both of them, I think, were averaging single figures playing as specialist bats for 10 or 12 games each, um, and both in their own way of paying off quite handsomely. So, yeah, I've, in answer to your question, I don't know. Do do PNG know something we don't? Well, almost certainly there are a lot of things that we don't. Uh, whether any of those things justify keeping Gary Taker in the team, well, our time will tell. Fair enough. And just to reiterate, uh, the points table reads United States first, United Arab Emirates second. So they both advance to the Cricket World Cup qualifier later on in the year. Uh, Namibia and Canada were third and fourth. Uh, and then the two teams who were relegated down to the Challenge League were Jersey and Papua New Guinea. So after this tournament, we've got the Cricket World Cup qualifier coming up. But just before we get to that, we can talk about a few off-field things. Uh, umpiring, you mentioned, and the, I guess, some of the aggression shown on the field and some kind of niggling behavior. What was your sense of, of both of those issues? And I guess my point would be that it's kind of related because if your umpiring is not up to scratch, it allows the players to get away with more in terms of unsavory on-field behavior. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think um, it's difficult. You wouldn't, you certainly can't look at this, the the umpiring in general across this tournament, and say that it's been good. There's been some very poor calls. Uh, there's been some, in fact, inexplicable calls at times, um, and some of them have have been decisive in individual matches, if not necessarily the eventual outcome of the tournament. But yeah, there's this is doubly this is this is an issue of cost. There's the broadcast standard at this tournament was the same that we've seen for League Two and a lot of pathway events, which is to say it was substandard. It's been done on the cheap, yeah, with you know antiquated cameras and only three of them that simply aren't good enough to be able to have probably even to be able to adjudicate line calls and, and close catches uh, much less of course the Hawkeye technology that you need to implement DRS I don't think anyone was ever expecting DRS at this tournament but if you have a situation where you, you don't have the same you know umpires don't have the same technology that they would enjoy at elite level uh, then I think it's more important 
even more important to have uh, the best umpires that you can get on the field. And when I say the best, I don't only mean, you know, technically uh, you know, gifted uh, umpires who, who have the ability to make these decisions, but but also that they have a degree of experience uh, standing in uh, international cricket, but in sort of high pressure tournaments like this, um, where players do get more heated and where behaviour is certainly, you know, just other ways that teams have different ways of appealing. And, you know, across the cricket world, there's ways in which the conventions of the game are interpreted, interpreted that aren't necessarily the same everywhere and a lot of the umpiring teams that we have here simply don't have that experience and i think more than half of them were, were standing in their first odis at this tournament and those that weren't i think usually only had one or two tournaments experience prior to that there's only a couple of exceptions there and i think if you put umpires in that situation you, you notice that it wasn't one or two of the umpiring team that had a bad tournament collectively as an umpiring team they had a, a just a poor tournament um not only in terms of the decision making which uh, i think all of the players were fairly and, and equally spread around i think in every every team i spoke to has said that the standard of umpiring wasn't up to scratch uh but also in terms of yeah of, of being able to like talk to captains and, and tell them like what is and isn't acceptable behavior and, and personally i don't I don't mind uh, a bit of uh, aggression shown on the field, and I'm not overly prudish, especially about, about colourful language off it. But the the rules that the ICC have are pretty clear on this: that it's not allowed. And if you're going to have those rules, then you need to enforce them. And I think you need to have that kind of experience and authority that that, that really only comes with with having a, a long career in, in umpiring to be able to talk to captains and be listened to. Uh, and I thought that yeah, that is that was unfortunately also something that was that was pretty absent in this tournament. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could say that associates in this situation get um, they get shafted twice, really, because the ICC is too stingy to pay for the decision review technology, but they also aren't sending their best umpires, so they get more bad decisions and less ability to challenge them. Um, My understanding is that sending your best umpires is almost as expensive as getting DRS in. At least I can't I can't be absolutely hundred percent certain on this, but I do understand that the elite level umpires tend to prefer to, to fly business class. Well, I guess that doesn't help. Yeah, <laughs> but, but even then, I. Mean, I mean, there are, there are a lot of umpires on the development panel who have stood in an awful lot of these tournaments and not, and you know, I don't think it's enough to have just one or two at what is, you're, you're two steps away from the World Cup here. And, you know, what's the, the point of having this sort of experienced um, development panel of umpires if you're, if you're only going to send a couple of them to supervise local, um, local umpires for, for tournaments like these? You know, it's not as if now there's not enough international cricket going around that you, that you don't have places where umpires at the start of the career can learn their game. So I thought that was a bit, it's a bit of a disappointing decision, but it all comes down to cost. And this is something that we've spoken about at length and we've kind of done to death here which is that there isn't any money and it's not up to the ICC team on the ground what their budget is and it's not even up to the office staff in Dubai what the budget is. That is a question of how um, the ICC members and specifically ICC full members think that the ICC's revenue should be spent and they think their revenue should be spent um, by paying off full members. And so long as that's the case, then... I mean, we're going to see this situation. And this is why, of course, there's not going to be DRS at the qualifier either, which I, I confirmed at this tournament and, and didn't even rather write an article about because I didn't really think it would be news. I got taken aback that anybody was surprised at this. And it seems to have actually, for those in the wrote it off quick info, it's caused a bit of a splash. Rightly so, actually. Fellows clearly has a better nose for news than me because it turns out that the cricket world does remember what happened at the last qualifier. And there's actually quite a bit of chat now about the fact that it's outrageous that there's no DRS at the qualifier. But I don't think you or I are the least bit surprised um, at that decision. Well, yes, exactly. And and this kind of, uh, it's sort of a nexus of a number of problems affecting well, associate cricket and, and cricket more generally, I guess you could just lump in most international cricket, really, which is fundamentally the ICC 
And I use the ICC loosely because, as we've established, the people working in the office in Dubai and, and certainly <laughs> the people on the ground, you know, running around trying to get a tournament happening, they're not the ones making these decisions. But the ICC, as a kind of a puppet organization of the interests of rich full members, they don't well, understand. Not rich full members perceive to be their interests, which I think is. Well, this is this is the point I'm getting to, but it's in that the, they don't understand the quality of the product they have, and the ICC's ostensible purpose is to be running international cricket, and this has been just a, a cracking tournament of international cricket that should be beamed around the world, and, and people who like cricket should be seeing these games and getting excited to watch more of a similar style of cricket between really closely matched teams with a lot on the line, and and that's a great product that they've got, and you look at the matches themselves and the actual quality of the cricket, you know, Ali Khan is box office. But somehow the ICC isn't able to bother marketing that. Or, you know, all of these teams are producing great matchups. <laughs> PNG almost chasing 380. That's quality stuff. But no one's seeing it because the people who are making the decisions around streaming, the decisions around, well, cost cutting, pathway events, all of it, and they just sort of look at the short term. The tournaments are going to cost X amount. The streaming is going to cost Y amount. How can we make it as small as possible? They don't think about the broader picture, which is the ICC should be making international cricket the biggest, the best, the most attractive product they possibly can because. <laughs> with the spreading, mushrooming, whatever you want to call it, of franchise cricket, the franchise cricket owners, who are basically a small handful of billionaires, more or less from India, they're going to have more and more control over cricket as a whole. So if the ICC slash uh, full members themselves want to continue existing, you know, they need an exciting alternative product that isn't controlled by a small number of private companies. Well, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, Nick, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware. Well, it is, it is, it is Good Friday here, so I've, I've uh, started having a sermon <laughs> yeah i mean this is it it's 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 an extraordinary myopia that seems to be affecting national cricket boards that they seem to realize that, that essentially the only thing that they have a monopoly on is international cricket and if you look at these franchise tournaments and you look at the way the game's evolving and people are you know you hear so often it's like oh it's moving towards football and for you know football model where you have domestic where the domestic season is more important than the international season but when people say that they they mean soccer but they're wrong because the way that the game is going is far more towards an American franchise model where the franchise owners are the ones that call the shots and that the the boards running it are essentially what the ICC now is to a full member which is simply a secretariat that serves the interest of franchise owners and it's incredible to me that and I think I said this at the time I think I've said this repeatedly most notably when South Africa decided to skip out on their uh, Super League obligations in order to host the uh, SAC 20 that they are notional owners of these franchise leagues but they're not contributing anything but permission and as such that makes them rent seekers and if you're you know if you're a rent seeker without political power then in the long term you know people aren't going to keep cutting you checks for nothing and the more you see that these uh, franchise owners are, you know, they're buying up franchises at every one of these leagues. And you will absolutely have a situation where the Mumbai Indians are a larger and more consequential organization in world cricket than any individual one of these satellite franchise leagues. And if national boards continue to prioritize making short-term cash off their own little franchise league, for as long as they can, then eventually they're going to end up marginalized as well. And they'll have nothing to fall back on if they've continued to marginalise international cricket. Because at the end of the day, that is the game they are stakeholders in. And in the franchise world, they're rent seekers. Uh, it, it astonishes me that there's no one on any of these boards that has looked 20 years ahead and then gone, well, if we're going to be living in a world of franchise cricket, what's the point of us? Because the answer is there is none. 
there is no point in having a CSA or a West Indies Cricket Board if the world is run by franchises because they're not contributing anything in that world. What they're contributing to is international cricket. And if, yeah, if you continue to deprioritize international cricket, you're essentially, you're just hammering nails into your own coffin. Well, yeah, I mean, we're in furious agreement, I think, on this topic of, of the ICC's, uh, you know, position in the world and, and what they're doing with international cricket. I guess we can only hope that at least they change providers for the stream you know, in the next cycle, because it just hasn't been good enough to see it dropping out all the time. And, you know, DRS is one thing, but... I think at just... this point, you'd hope that the ICC realised that trying to run their own proprietary platform behind a registration wall uh, has been a terrible mistake. I can't see that it benefits them in any way other than data harvesting. Uh, it's astonishing to me that, that it's better to simply put this stuff up on YouTube where people can stumble across it, rather than putting it behind a, a wall on ICC TV that most people don't seem to have even heard of. And when they have, it doesn't work probably anyway so why bother it's and then yeah and then the IMG that's a whole nother podcast or an absolute disaster <laughs> yes uh we, we don't need to uh get into the we'll be right back uh, issues again well as always Bertus de Jong uh it's been a great pleasure talking to you on emerging cricket and uh wrapping up another exciting tournament in Vintuk unfortunately uh, none of us could be there with you but uh, hopefully we'll be able to cross paths another time soon cheers Nick always a joy to join you on the pod catch you soon